Hello, and welcome to the Common Good Project. My name is Chris Conway, and I'm the co-convener of this project. Uh, today, we are departing from our usual conversation series with guest scholars to begin a series of four lectures by my co-convener, Ryan Mead. As always, thank you to the Faculty of Law, as well as Blackfriars Hall and the Aquinas Institute for hosting the Common Good Project's events. Today, we want to provide an extra thank you to the Aquinas Institute as the principal host of these four lectures. This lecture series is entitled Regulations and the Common Good, Compliant to the Common Wind. Today's first lecture is titled Revisiting the Morality of Law in Regards to Regulations. These lectures, like our conversation series, spring from Thomas Aquinas's definition of, of law being an ordinance of reason for the common good, promulgated by the one who has care of the community. The format for these lectures will be fairly straightforward. Uh, Ryan will present a formal paper for approximately 50 minutes. Then I will provide a brief response with questions to Ryan, and then I will read questions put in the chat, chat box. Uh, as always, we encourage you to put questions in the chat box. And if we don't get to all of the questions, we will use them for future programming, or in this case, uh, for these lectures, Ryan will likely address them in the next lecture. Although we usually don't go into our bios uh, <clears throat> on the Common Good Project, since this is a bit more formal uh, than our conversation series, I will introduce Ryan. Ryan Mead is a research fellow of Blackfriars Hall and of the Aquinas Institute at the University of Oxford. He focuses his academic work on jurisprudence and philosophy of law, administrative law, constitutional law, Roman law, as well as a variety of comparative health policy and law topics. Prior to Oxford, Ryan taught law for several years at, the, at Loyola University in Chicago in the Beasley Center for Health Law and Policy. He was the Director of Regulatory Compliance Studies at Loyola, uh, which provides academic concentrations in the technical application of law to highly regulated industries. He was the founding director of the Center for Compliance Studies, where he, was a where he has senior fellow status. Ryan received his BA from Northwestern University, his Juris Doctor degree from Cornell University, and completed a program in postgraduate law studies at the University of Edinburgh Law School. Ryan, the floor is yours. Thank you, Chris. And likewise, thank you to the Faculty of Law, Blackfriars Hall, and the Aquinas Institute for co-hosting the Common Good Project and these lectures. I need to give a fairly usual disclaimer when starting multiple formal lectures that have an arc. These four papers form a work in progress. So I welcome comments, dialogue, and most importantly, criticisms to help me improve these discussions. My paper today has four parts. First, an overview of the arc in these four lectures. And I'll warn listeners, this is the longest part of my paper today, it takes up about two thirds of the time, since I'm trying to cover all the salient features at a high level of the four lectures. In the second part of the paper, I will discuss the assumptions that sit under the arc of the lectures. And third, in the paper, I will provide a description of what I mean by regulations. It might seem a bit odd to describe the subject of my lecture series so late in today's paper and give that definition of regulations then, but hopefully you'll see why I'm putting it off to later in the paper. And just so you know, in a few moments, I'll give a working definition of regulations so that we have something to, uh, something to, to, to work with during the ARC discussion. Fourthly, I will examine the morality of law in regard to regulations. Despite the title of the paper today being on morality, this is actually the shortest part of my paper since my thesis is fairly straightforward. We cannot talk about law or any state action without talking about morality. In the sense first that all ordinances of the state attempt some type of vision of values. And second, the sufficiency of law, including regulations, must be judged not just by the process of lawmaking, but the content of the ordinance that was made. 
So the content of the ordinance must be judged by moral standards. Now, the process and the question of whether law and regulations have a morality, even if they don't meet normative moral standards, is the focus of this fourth, fourth part of my paper today. We need to get through that short thesis that all state action, all law, is attempting some value vision, which for the moment I will shorthand called morality, that all law is attempting that uh, at some level, despite its drafters protests. And then once we get through that, and I assert my argument uh, uh, there, then we can talk about uh, the form of morality, the, the normative morality, on how to assess the content of, of law, which I'm going to leave for some later lectures. And I will tie the normative moral standards that I'll describe in the later lectures in with the common good. So with that in mind, uh, for the most part, I'm going to leave the details about the common good to lecture two. And that lecture uh, on the common good ties the common good and law to metaphysics. In the third lecture, I'll examine the morality of regulations as law when they are made by the executive function of the state and how these executive actions, these executive regulations can be moral and how the common good serves as the regulator of regulations made by the executive. To make the ideas concrete, I will use some examples from the UK and US along with a few from Canada and Australia. And then in the fourth and last lecture, I hope to be practical and set out six points on how the common good can be used in drafting and enforcing regulations. We'll also have a response panel at that lecture. Now, if you get to the end of the four lectures and you think, hmm, he hasn't really set out a theory of regulations, but he set out a theory of law with regulations as his foil, then I'll be happy to have done that. And if at the end you also think, hmm, he, I don't think he's set out anything original, he's just rehashed some old theories of law in the context of what he defined as regulations, then my work is done here, I would say, because I'm not convinced we need any new theories of law. The classical theories of law do the job, but they must be articulated for the needs of society today. And the legal systems of the West are filled to the roof with regulations. Regulations are also the chief mechanism by which the executive function administers any state. So part one of my paper is where are these four lectures going in examining regulations and the common good? I am hoping each paper in this series is something in which a listener need not be a philosopher or a lawyer, let alone a philosopher of law or still yet, not need to be that most tedious a person, an analytic philosopher of law. I am a self-professed tedious person of that sort, but I hope these papers are accessible simply to a person interested in law and society. You will not hear many philosophers' names today, but a few, and mostly uh, you'll hear uh, Thomas Aquinas' name. You will definitely not hear any court cases today, and I will be citing only minimal legal code. I'll save those things for later lectures. And just in case people are interested in the legal theorists that I will deal with in future lectures and are running around in this paper. Well, they're, they're a ragtag crew of Aristotle, Cicero, Justinian, Augustine, Aquinas, Suarez, Grotius, Fuller, Hart, Finnis, Dworkin, Vermeule, Kenny, Thumption, and perhaps less obvious in my line of thinkers, a touch of Wittgenstein and Chomsky, plus some others. We will touch in these lectures on Roman law, law and late scholasticism, contemporary law, and also some brief notes on canon law in the development of Western law and the common good. I hope I can describe law and regulations today in a broad manner and use simple examples that will get the points across as a primer in this common good framework for thinking about regulations. Now, perhaps the first question is why treat regulations 
rather than treat law more broadly? To answer, we first need a shorthand description of what I mean by a regulation. So this is what I mentioned a few moments ago. Let me give you something that's uh, a, a bit of a working description of a regulation. Uh, and I'll describe it more extensively later um, in the uh, third part. But for now, what I mean by a regulation is a law that is drafted and signed into law by a state authority that is not the legislature. This is usually done by the executive function of the state or by some regulating authority that is the agent of the state. Regulations go by many names, such as simply regulations. Or for example, in the UK, there are a variety of regulations that carry different names. Uh, one of the uh, strongest and uh, most popular uh, uh, form of regulation is when a regulation is, uh, is promulgated by a statutory instrument, uh, which I'll discuss a little bit later, is something which, although drafted by the executive, goes before parliament or is laid before parliament. But a regulation is typically drafted by departments, ministers, or the cabinet office, even if it might somehow get back to a legislature or a legislature may have some residual authorities over a, a regulation. The important point here is that despite the many different ways that regulations are promulgated and come into existence as law and the many names that regulations might have depending upon the country and the jurisdiction, my point is that uh, the regulations that I'm talking about are those that don't have their origins in the legislature. So with this working sense of what a regulation is, now why treat regulations? Well, because regulations are the most dominant form of law in Western countries. And with how I use the term regulation in this, in this lecture series, I suspect regulations are likely the most dominant form of law throughout the world. While regulations are public, they often develop and go into effect as law very quietly. Regulations are in the open air, but very few individuals pay attention to them, even those who follow politics closely. At least until an individual runs up against a regulation, then they know the regulation is there and they follow it and wonder about it and are curious about its origin. Regulations tend to find people this way in surprising ways. Often when an inspector arrives on your doorstep to check to see if you had done something which you had no idea you were supposed to do, or sometimes a notice arrives in the mail with a penalty and you don't even know that you had been, uh, had been assessed or, or reviewed. So there's, there's many ways that these regulations that we often don't know are out there. They, they find their way to us. But regulations are law, or at least states treat them as law. Uh, we follow them like law, yet little is discussed about them. Regulations are, as the saying goes, hidden in plain sight. Most Britons have heard of the European Union Withdrawal Act. That is the law which effectuated Brexit. But how many have heard of the 333 statutory instruments or regulations the executive function of the state has written and laid before parliament? The 333rd was laid just this past Tuesday, the 1st of June. And in the United States, regulations are not set before Congress, though there are some residual authorities Congress has if it wants to take up regulations the executive branch has promulgated and under certain circumstances. Uh, and, but the regulations in the, in the US, uh, although they may not go as frequently before Congress as statutory instruments are laid before parliament in the UK, uh, they are uh, equally published openly and accessible to everyone. They're published in what's called the Federal Register. The Federal Register is available easily online, but how many Americans read the Federal Register to keep up, keep up with what new regulatory laws impact their daily life or businesses? 
uh, even trade associations that might look after particular sectors of the economy and particular groupings of, uh, of companies and industries have a hard time keeping up with everything that's published in the Federal Register. The Federal Register in the US has a cumulative page count each day during the calendar year. And the last regulation from this morning's Federal Register publication is entitled Regulations Governing the Taking and Importing of Marine Mammals. And it begins on page 30,124 and ends on page 30,129. Meaning that as of this morning, the US federal government has issued 30,129 pages of regulations and commentary since New Year's Day. Now, this is not to say regulations in themselves are bad or that 333 statutory instruments uh, is somehow too large of a number uh, to, uh, to, to, to put Brexit into place and to leave the EU. Uh, frankly, I'm, I would, uh, I'm surprised there are only 333 statutory instruments that were laid before parliament. Um, but uh, also I could, could say that 30,129 pages of regulations and commentary in five months in the US, uh, are, that, that's a lot of pages to read. It's not to say that it's bad. Many of those pages are filled with guidances, commentary, draft rules, interim final rules, and then the final rule. So there's, there's a lot of repeat in those, in those pages. Um, but uh, but it, it's quite a bit. And, and again, without taking from the, the question of whether the regulations are not are needed, uh, the point is, is that they're out in the public, but sometimes they can be so voluminous that we can miss them because of their size. And in, in fact, uh, going back to the question of whether these are too many regulations or not uh, uh, is, is not relevant for my paper uh, too much. I, I would say perhaps maybe, maybe some of the later lectures may touch a little bit on on size and uh, knowability and, cl and clarity. But uh, in fact, a, a great portion of my lectures will argue that regulations can be moral despite having no meaningful review or approval by a legislature. It's important that people know about regulations as we'll discuss, and it's important that they have access to, to them. Um, but it is also a, a fact of the complexity of, of our life that it may not be uh, possible for everyone to keep up on all regulations, uh, but keeping up on the regulations that affect you as a regulated actor is something that, that people do need to do. And to the extent the complexity of our society needs regulations, those regulated actors have responsibility to watch for those regulations. Regulations fill in gaps of statutes passed by legislatures that are necessary for enacting statutes. So this is a, another feature of regulations is that statutes as they go through legisl legislatures, sometimes they get very detailed, but more often than not, they're staying at a high level. Uh, of course, as I noted, there's, there's, there's many, many statutes that are very, very detailed, but most statutes have gaps that need to be filled in in order to enact the statute, enforce the statute, and to bring to life the goals of the statute. That's what regulations do. And because of the complexity of society today, regulations are a fact of life. But they become law quietly without the passionate arguments that accompany a bills moving through chambers and houses of legislatures. And all states treat regulations as law. They must treat regulations as law or the state cannot enforce the penalties associated with non-compliance. So if regulations are law, then regulators must strive to craft regulations with the character of law, which binds in conscience and force so that the regulations not only uh, have the appearance of law, but they carry the moral force of law as equally as statutes passed by a legislature. 
In other words, and if we are to take Aquinas's definition of law seriously, which Chris described at the, in the introduction, then all forms of human law, whether they be statutes or regulations or other state actions, need to conform to that definition. So regulations, using the, the definition that Aquinas gives that we've been working with in the Common Good Project, uh, and substituting the term regulations for law, regulations need to be an ordinance of reason for the common good promulgated by the one who has care of the community. These four lectures will keep coming back round to that definition to explore regulations. And in some form or fashion, I'll treat all four parts of the definition. First, ordinance of reason. Second, for the common good third promulgated, fourth by the one who has care of the community. Uh, this is how uh, we've, we've uh, chosen to express this. Uh, the, the, uh, many of you may know a formulation in English with some of the words and the criteria in different, different, different uh, orders, but um, uh, I, I generally see the first two, ordinance of reason for the common good, uh, as, as although they're separate criteria, a criteria, they are grouped together uh, for reasons I'll explain. And the, the last two promulgated by the one who has care of the community, they're also grouped, those two are grouped together for a particular reason. So the four parts, uh, it, it, they all need to be met, uh, but we will explore them as we go through the four lectures in these groups of two with a particular emphasis on that second criterion for the common good, as the title of the series suggests. I, I use more resources to help form these thoughts than just Aquinas, as, uh, as I mentioned in the, uh, in the opening few minutes. And uh, I, I will take a, a deeper look as we go into the lectures, how Aquinas stitched aspects of his famous definition together. Uh, because although I will be using people that have come after Aquinas, I will also be using uh, people who came before Aquinas. And, and those who, who helped in the ideas that formed his definition, particularly Isidore. Um, but uh, I will try to stay, uh, I'll try to stay faithful to this definition of law that Aquinas gives. For lawyers listening over the next few weeks, these lectures may have a touch of administrative law, but in treating regulations, I really do mean to be addressing the moral grounding of legal code that has not come from democratically elected legislatures. And assuming that regulations are capable of being binding law, as I argue they can be, much of the three subsequent lectures will address how the common good, that second criterion of the definition, provides an orientation for regulations in their drafting and enforcement. So administrative law often deals with regulations, how the state is administered. And no doubt there's many parts of, of my lectures that are in the realm of administrative law, but I'm not attempting a grand theory of administrative law. I'm really, uh, uh, what I'm trying to do is look at a theory of law as that theory of law manifests itself in regulations. Now, uh, at this point, some listeners might be getting nervous about the forms of law I'm talking about in that they're not promulgated by democratic legislatures or they are regulations that can't find their authority origin in words that are written on parchment. But these regulations that I'm talking about, they might seem unbounded. And indeed they are unbounded in some ways from legislatures or written constitutions, but they do have a restraint and that restraint is morality. And we'll be talking both about what is sometimes referred to as the inner morality of, of law, as well as extrinsic uh, judgments, uh, normative morality, and standards by which the content of, of law is judged. So although the regulations can, they, they often carry a sense that they are undemocratic because they aren't adopted 
by a legislature. I, I will advance some ideas, uh, particularly in the third lecture on this, that, that, that uh, one that is connected to uh, a theory of democracy, but that they are also uh, uh, moral and capable of being moral laws, just laws, laws that bind in conscience, even though they are not uh, adopted by legislatures, but promulgated by the executive. And that limiting principle that they have is normative morality. That normative morality has its uh, closest ties to the first two criteria of Thomas's definition, an ordinance of reason for the common good. The common good is the critical concept for these sessions. And as I've already suggested, uh, it is what I believe the regulator of regulations that are promulgated by the executive. And by saying that, I, I also am, am not putting aside, as we'll discuss, when the executive promulgates regulations as secondary legislation to primary legislation passed by a, a legislature. That uh, why are we dealing with that? But the more controversial questions and the more the more critical questions of of grounding uh, the uh, justness uh, or, or the morality of regulations comes when the executive needs to administer the state and promulgates law that is not connected to legislation, not connected to uh, a written code. Um, can that be moral? Can those be just? Uh, to the extent regulations abide by some version of Aquinas' definition and use particularly this criterion for the common good, then I will argue throughout these lectures that they can be just laws and they can be moral. But one reason why I take an emphasis and put an emphasis on the second criterion for the common good is because it seems to be among the four, the one that is most forgotten. So we can argue about whether a law is reasonable or not, or regulation is reasonable or not. We can argue whether the regulation has gone through the appropriate lawmaking process and is, uh, is, is promulgated appropriately. We can argue about, who, about whether the office or department that has promulgated the regulation has the jurisdiction to uh, promulgate that, that, that regulation, whether they have the care of the community for that particular subject matter. Uh, there's, there's lots and lots of discussion about this. Many cases in many jurisdictions will review in their own way those three criteria. But that fourth criterion uh, the, for the common good seems to be missing from a lot of discussion. The immediate goal of a command of the state might comport with reason when the technical details of a regulation are isolated to a set of facts sitting in an isolated box that the drafter of the regulation has, has thought about. But has the drafter of the regulation thought broader than that box of a small set of facts? Have they thought beyond that to the common good? And whether that regulation serves the common good? Will it help human flourishing? Will it provide the conditions for well-being for the community? Or is it just treating an immediate problem? Many regulations do need to treat an immediate problem. They need to rebalance a wrong or manage a risk, but they also need to keep an eye on that broader goal, an end that is beyond what may seem small and tight and neatly wrapped in a regulation for the instant needs of the command of, 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 of that regulation. Uh, so you know, one might think about uh, something that might seem trivial, whether a fire door notice is blue or red. The important point is that it's some color that people can see, uh, but the decision-making process by a regulator uh, and by the state to decide even whether a fire door notice should be blue or red is, is an important thing and needs to look beyond simply the, 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 the decision of, of what color it is. 
Um, this further horizon of regulations and what is all law uh, is ultimately, uh, according to Aquinas, and this is what these lectures will, will, uh, will uh, try to uh, be faithful to, that the, this further horizon, this end of law and regulations is friendship and human flourishing. And to think about even how small commands of the state, which seem to have nothing to do with the common good, uh, actually do. And, and if you don't think about the common good, if the regulator doesn't think beyond simply the question of, oh, do I decide whether the notice should be blue or red, and think about what they're doing in that decision, and they're not thinking about the common good, more broadly, uh, is to risk the administration of the state and the complexity of regulations spiraling into disconnected madness. Um, now, it, you might be thinking, again, pausing here and, and saying, you're, I'm trying to connect uh, a, a fire door uh, notice and the fact that they're blue in the UK uh, with something grand and uh, and broad that the state of civilization depends on, on blue or red. Um, it may not decide on whether it's blue or red, but in the context of that regulation being needed, assuming it is, and we'll stipulate that it is, to have some notice so that, so that people know uh, where to go in case there is a fire and which, which doors will be self-closing and, and, and protect, it, it, it needs to be some color that's noticed. It, it wouldn't be so good, I would, I would say, if a fire door notice was beige. But by being blue or red, you are doing something which is noticeable. Uh, and, um, but you're also doing something that's consistent. If fire door notices, uh, notices were blue and red, yellow, green, and orange, and they could be all sorts of colors except white, black, or beige, uh, well, that that might not be so good. Um, I mean, we can debate this perhaps some other time, and this the goal is not to turn this into a question about fire door notices. But uh, but but even the question of something like that, which is small, there's a, there's a lot that goes goes behind it, uh, and so this is uh, this is important. Uh, many times, as I as I mentioned, we we can debate those three criteria, ordinance of reason promulgated and uh, by the one who has care for the community, but law or purported law, attempted law, that isn't in some way thinking about the common good uh, is, is missing a criterion. Now, it, it might be that deciding blue or red is, is, uh, is, is not, you might come to the conclusion that the important thing, as I noticed, is that it is a color that stands out. And, and, and that provides safety and that provides something that uh, all people can be trained on and, and recognize. Uh, that may be the big question. That may be the common good question in a, in a regulation, uh, in that regulation. Uh, so, so it, it is it, it, the small, but the, I think my point is that, uh, that, the, that if we're going to say that a law needs to meet these criteria, it, it always needs to meet these criteria. Um, and regulators need to think about the common good. Now, next week, uh, I am going to jump from blue fire door notices to metaphysics. Um, and uh, I promise I'm not going to try to explain the metaphysics of, of, of blue fire door notices, but I will be talking about the metaphysics of law. Um, if I wanted to get really complicated, I would probably discuss not the metaphysics of fire door notices, but the metaphysics of fire extinguisher colors. Uh, which for uh, many people may not know that um, in the UK, there are four colors of, of uh, fire extinguishers. Um, there's the red, of course, but then there's a big color that's usually on a fire extinguisher and the different colors, the four different colors mean different things. Uh, so, uh, and 
In fact, there used to be more. Um, there was a recent suppression of the fifth and sixth color, although Scotland still uses the fifth color um, there. So, so uh, blue fire door notices and trying to keep things simple uh, is, uh, is, is where I will try to, to stay at. Um, uh, but if we were just to take for a moment the notion of what color should a fire extinguisher be, uh, well, uh, there may be good reasons to have multiple colors. If you're trained on uh, what extinguisher to use for what type of fire, and in fact, it, it's important uh, that uh, you use the right extinguisher for the right, for the right fire. Um, so having multiple colors for extinguishers might be, might be good, might uh, not only be reasonable, but there may be good common good arguments for that. Uh, it, uh, but yet for the, for the fire door notices on the door, having one color uh, might serve the common good better than having multiple colors, uh, since hopefully a self-closing fire door is a self-closing fire door. Um, but in any case, I, uh, I don't want it to confuse folks too much with uh, regulations around, uh, around fire safety, but I, I assume we can all, we can all uh, agree that fire safety is an important thing in, in our community. And these colors uh, are something which uh, uh, I would imagine most people uh, would agree is, is something that is probably best left for a specialized department or the executive function to deal with. And when, if I were to ask the question, should legislatures be debating whether fire door notices are blue or red or whether uh, the color yellow should be used or not used for fire extinguishers. Is that the best use of the time of, of, of legislators? Is that something which the, uh, the, the commons or the lords should be, should be spending their time debating? Or is that something which the executive function of the state should simply decide? Um, I, I would imagine, but this is where I'm, I'm open for criticisms and please tell me if, if, uh, if there are uh, individuals who think that uh, these types of questions, even in the small detail, would be better served by a legislature uh, uh, debating this. Um, I uh, believe that they would be, they're better served in these details and in filling out the, the gaps of of, of statutes or in these types of situations where the uh, where, where uh, safety is concerned, that those details would be better done by the executive function of the state. But if they are to be done by the executive function of the state, we, we need to ask how they're done by the executive function of the state and how, uh, when the executive makes these regulations, uh, how they are law. If they're not law, it would be unjust to enforce them like law. So, uh, so, so it, there might be theories, there might be people who advocate that the smallest detail of whatever is to be enforced with law, that is to have penalties associated with non-compliance, need to go through the legislative process. Of, I will be discussing how they can go through the executive process and be moral. Uh, again, which executive process, which jurisdiction, uh, that, that I will leave for other people to, to discuss. I, I want to talk more about uh, theory and philosophy of law and uh, of regulations as law uh, than particular, uh, particular jurisdictions, e even though, of course, I'll, I'll need to keep using some of the jurisdictions as, as a backdrop. Uh, well, another point I want to make in this, in this arc is that there seems to be an assumption today uh, that if a law is passed by a democratically elected legislature or a law perfectly conforms to a written constitutional code in states that have written constitutional codes, that there is more than a presumption of morality for the attempted law but that whatever comes out on the end of, other end of the process is just. That as long as a bill goes through the legislature 
follows the right process and becomes law with the appearance of law, that it is just and that its content is presumed moral because it's gone through a legislature uh, or in the processes where there are uh, regulations drafted, put in statutory instruments, laid before parliament or in the US as they follow the Administrative Procedure Act, that whatever comes out on the other side, as long as you follow process, that those laws are just and, and moral. Um, I question that uh, and uh, think that that is putting the question of morality and justice in process and ignoring the content of laws and regulations. There may be many practical reasons why someone should comply with procedurally perfected ordinances of the state. It would be very rare as a lawyer that I would counsel any client to not comply with a law that doesn't require them to do an evil act, but has been procedurally perfected through the process. Um, that is something that it's it's often uh, it, it's 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 often the case where you're simply uh, the the risk benefit of of uh, of trying to uh, challenge that law is sometimes a, a very or the regulation it's it's very high it's very costly the chances of winning may be may be low um, there are other times where there's great things at stake there's a, a considerable uh, uh, liberties that are at stake. Uh, there may be livelihoods, businesses, jobs at stake. And then it may, it might be that uh, the council may be to, to comply, but to challenge the law. Um, that how a lawyer counsels a client on whether to comply with the law that isn't requiring them to do something evil is different from whether the content of the law is moral. So, uh, and we're gonna, we'll explore this uh, more again as we go deeper in, because it, that might seem, well, well, if, if you're going to say that this law does not meet uh, moral standards, uh, why would you counsel a client to comply with the law? Why would you advise anyone to comply with something that is not a moral law? Uh, we'll, we'll, Get into that. There's there, there are limits of that, as I've as I've already alluded to, is is that if the law is uh, is is uh, forcing someone to do an evil act, um, people cannot do an evil act, and they may have to be very brave. But uh, absent the law forcing to do an evil act, uh, uh, Aquinas has quite a bit to say uh, about this, and we'll we'll discuss this. That does not put aside the assessment of the morality of the law. Um, so so I, I just wanna make that, uh, make that point because it, it's often the case and it's often asked of, of lawyers as just like, well, you disagree with that law or you don't think this law is right. Or you don't think that it is, it has even been procedurally promulgated correctly. Uh, how can you advise a client to comply with that law? Um, well, I'll hold that, um, uh, uh, but it's a good question to ask, um, and there, there are some ways to work through it. But, the, but my point here is, is that there are presumptions, I believe, in the West that procedure makes a law just. And that's to confuse the practical realities of deciding whether to comply with a law and the assessment of whether that law itself is, is moral or the content is moral. The process itself, I, I don't believe, makes a, a law moral. Um, process itself might take care of two of the criteria that Thomas provides, but it doesn't deal with the first two. Um, and, and at the same time that there seems to be, and perhaps I'm overstating this in order to make a point, this there seems to be this presumption of justice through lawmaking process in the West. There also seems to be a bit of a 
presumption that if the executive promulgates a regulation or attempts to promulgate a law, that that somehow is, uh, that there's a presumption of illegality or immorality or lack of morality uh, in that. And this, this presumption, I, I think, has taken hold in different ways in different states, in different jurisdictions. Uh, and so it's uh, this, I think, this presumption against the executive uh, promulgating law through regulations is, uh, it, it has different uh, passions uh, in, in different jurisdictions. Uh, so, uh, and we'll explore a little bit, bit, bit more on, on that. But that is simply not the, it's, it simply isn't the reality uh, that the executive in, in, in most, most states, again, it's, it's like some may argue for a theory that uh, all law must go through a legislature and um, perhaps there is some state, I'm, I'm not aware of one, uh, where all things that have the character of law uh, must go through a legislature. It's, it's simply the day-to-day -day life of the state that commands of the state, regulations uh, uh, of the state, most of them are issued by the executive or agents of the state that in some way are acting on behalf of the executive. Uh, so, again, we need to explore that if that's the case. Uh, I mean, unless most states in the world are uh, promulgating regulations that lack morality, both inner morality as well as not conforming to some exterior normative morality, uh, unless that's the case, uh, we, we, we must come up with and, and explore how it is that these are grounded and that these are just. And so when the executive is the legislator or when the executive is the lawgiver, so to speak, what grounds that? I think when, you, when a, a person thinks practically about regulations, and for those of us who deal in administrative law and deal in regulations, this is of course our, our daily life, uh, but uh, I think the regulated actor, uh, once they think about it, it, to me, it seems to make sense that the executive would be filling in the gap. But it, when, when the theory of all of this is discussed, it can sound strange because of this, uh, this presumption that legislature, legislative process making produces just law and executive action we're very suspicious of in Western democratic states, because when the executive makes law, the executive is unbounded. So, uh, what it's, it, it, and it can be a grave matter for the fact that an executive promulgating law that is unbounded by prior legislation, unbounded by code or convention, it's, it's possible that that poses a risk. Uh, because there isn't anything on paper, there isn't anything written, uh, there isn't, it hasn't occurred before. Uh, but I, I will argue as we, as we go through, uh, I, I'm not sure that that's any more dangerous than a legislature, because a legislature can be inflamed by passions, uh, we, we all know uh, that, uh, that uh, when the mob rules that and the passions rule, reason often goes out the window. So uh, the process can be followed, but if the process is divorced from reason, the process of legislating is divorced from reason, uh, you're not going to get the criteria fulfilled that way. There may be different risks for the executive promulgating regulations not connected to legislation, then there are risks of the legislature producing unreasonable and unjust legislation. So the risks can be different. Uh, that doesn't mean, however, that uh, one is uh, necessarily uh, uh, endangering society. Um, so, but we'd have to look at, you know, and we'll look at some of the risk mitigation 
strategies. Uh, an important risk mitigation strategy, however, for the executive is looking at the morality of law and making sure that the common good is, is thought about and the common good being that regulator of regulations. So the broad question of the executive making regulations that are laws not passed by legislatures or not having meaningful review by legislatures, uh, this, this I believe needs to be justified on some grounds. Um, how else, I mean, if it's not justified on some moral grounds, how else can the state enforce them as laws? But I'd also pose that if it's not justifiable uh, and it doesn't meet some criteria of justice, some criteria of, of morality, then how can the state function without the ability of the executive to make these decisions? How can a statute be enacted? How can the, 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 the goals of the statute uh, come alive and be enforced if the gaps aren't, aren't filled in? So the, the executive provides an important function. Executive, the executive provides an important function in filling in those gaps. The executive uh, of legislation, the executive provides an important function in administering the state in, to ensure that the state fulfills its mission and its duties of protecting the, the community and fostering the conditions for human flourishing and well-being. Now, the, the, the normative morality I've been talking about, which I will, that which I believe anchors and restrains uh, the uh, executive in shaping regulations uh, by keeping the common good in mind. This normative morality that I'll discuss provides provides a substance for the common good. It, it, and and uh, but is, if anyone has a passing acquaintance with Thomas Aquinas, uh, you'll you'll probably already guessing that the normative morality that I'm going to discuss is virtue oriented, and I believe the common good framework for law is necessarily virtue oriented. Um, with with some assessors of the common good framework, I, I believe they miss this point that the uh, common good framework is, uh, is virtue oriented and that it's, it's not static. Uh, and also uh, sometimes commentators miss that a virtue oriented legal system uh, is not one that sets commands that uh, need to be followed because they are commands and those commands never change. Um, that would be to confuse the fact that law simply has the character of a command, a command of the state, with deontological ethics. Uh, so it, I, it's all laws, if there is no conformance to them, generally carry a penalty. Uh, now, the penalty by the state may not be enforced, uh, it, it, but it might, it, might be, it might be enforced. It's sometimes enforcement, as, as we'll discuss, is uh, it, uh, that is a, a, a moral decision, a, a, a decision of values itself, because there are so many laws until so you have to decide. Um, but the law itself is, it does, law as law is a command that is typically backed by a penalty. So there's, there's, there's force on the back end related to non-compliance and non-conformance. Um, as, as I say, that even some laws, some laws might not say what the penalty is, um, but there are uh, there are methods usually for the state to uh, to identify sanctions for nonconformance. So, so this is simply what law does; it commands. Um, and in the in the typically the three types of ethical systems: consequentialism, uh, deontology, and virtue uh, based ethical systems. Deontology is, is focused on commands where the ethics of it, the good is simply in following the command, um, despite what the consequences are. Uh, that can't be confused with the basic character of law. Law can be a command, but it can still be virtue oriented. 
And, it, and I, I believe one of the reasons why the law can be a command, but still virtue oriented is because it, if the law keeps not just its instant command in mind, but also the brighter, broader horizon of how that instant command fits in for the common good, the conditions for human flourishing, the conditions for uh, securing well-being for, for individuals, um, then that helps develop individuals. Ultimately, virtue, a virtue-based legal system does not say that the, the law is virtuous or the state is virtuous. Humans are virtuous or they're vicious. So human acts are, uh, are, are virtuous. They're either good or they're not good um, and, uh, and, and they, they might be uh, filled with vice. And uh, of course, uh, humans uh, being a complex, messy, a messy creature, uh, are, are, we're filled with both. <laughs> with hopefully though the goal of trying to orient our actions and trying to or, or, uh, orient our character uh, towards virtue, towards making ourselves good people. And, uh, and that's what law ultimately and a virtue-based legal system does. It tries to orient the community, individuals in the community to be virtuous. So there's a command by the law, but it's virtue oriented. And this virtue-based ethics that I believe undergirds a good virtue-based legal system does have a normative morality, but normative morality, uh, and this is, a, this is a complex concept which, which we'll explore, normative morality does not necessarily mean that uh, what must be done today is fixed forever. So that how a human law, positive law expresses the natural law, uh, it conforms to the natural law, expresses uh, a natural morality, uh, th that is something the human law is trying to treat today in order to address the, or is, is treating conditions today that are needed in order to provide the grounds for human flourishing. Those laws might change. They, they, they are not necessarily fixed forever. Very few laws are fixed forever. Uh, now, to be sure, there are a few basic ones that that are fixed, uh, such as laws against murder and theft, um, uh, it, as we would generally and at the surface think about uh, those those two terms, murder and theft. Uh, and the reason why those tend to be fixed, or some version of them tend to be fixed, is because they are so basic to civil society and respect for human dignity. Uh, that it, it's something that is always and everywhere going to need to be there with the backing of the state uh, for non-compliance in order to make sure that we have a just society. But the particularities of most laws and details, uh, they, they can change over time. In fact, I, I would argue that they need to change over time in order to address the needs of the community, because the needs of the community are not fixed forever. Whatever the pro a problem is today, it may be a problem today, but it may not be a problem in 10 years. And so a law that's needed today and the particular regulations in order to try and manage uh, an issue, right or wrong, rebalance relations, uh, manage risk of injustice, uh, in a very good system, hopefully the uh, individuals would uh, develop in virtue. Those, uh, those risks, perhaps the risks are inherent in a new, uh, in a technology that's not going away perhaps, but perhaps it's also, uh, there are risks of injustice simply based on changes in society. Uh, right now uh, we're communicating virtually that's not something that many people were doing 10 years ago. And I dare say two years ago, uh, not many people were doing it. 
at this frequent frequency for reasons we all, we all know. So the common good is, is not fixed. The normative morality has principles, but how the normative morality plays out in the community uh, with the common good as a backdrop is going to produce different laws for different communities and law will change. And in, in, in fact, the, the common good, as we'll discuss next week, is not static. Uh, this is something that I do think the, the, the critics of, of the common good framework uh, of thinking uh, really do miss quite a bit uh, that, uh, th that, that the common good is not a static thing. As we've been exploring in the common good project, it's, it's very hard to get a definition of the common good. Everybody, once they think about it, knows and believes that the common good is an important part of, of society and what we do and what law does, but, uh, it, but we debate what it means. Um, we may only be able to know what it means uh, through negative ways by seeing what it isn't. But again, we'll explore that. I, I, think, I think that uh, for now also to just situate the importance of the common good in this discussion of, of the arc of the lectures is to think of the common good as a, a dynamic exploration of what does the community need the state to do to provide the conditions for friendship and human flourishing. And that expression dynamic exploration, I'll, I'll talk more about that next week. It comes from a particular uh, individual who expressed this. And I, uh, I, 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 I particularly like that notion that it's a dynamic exploration. The exploration doesn't end. Um, someday it might end, um, but, uh, but uh, we're all going to be exploring that uh, for quite a while. So trying to figure out what the community needs, what the state can do. The state isn't the only at, uh, entity or actor in the community that uh, can affect change or promote human flourishing, but it's, it's the, one, the state is the one that backs laws. So we'll be talking about the state um, uh, in these lectures and in the backdrop of my theory. So, uh, so in, in regulations, uh, as I've described them, particularly as executive actions, I believe regulations provide quite a bit of flexibility to quickly change law, to meet the needs of the community and course correct if a law or regulation isn't working, or if we find out that a regulation is promulgated as having a dangerous unintended consequence. Now, I'm, I'm not going to advocate that a regulation uh, that is secondary legislation contradict directly the primary legislation if we're in a context of, of a regulation that the executive issues that points back to a statute. Uh, but uh, but I, so, so that's, that's not my point here, but uh, if the executive is filling in gaps of the statute and finds out that the way they filled in the gaps uh, through regulation isn't working, then regulation provides a, a quick way to course correct. That's much easier than going back to the legislature to uh, make an argument that, oh, well, we, uh, you, passed a, you passed an act that said that fire door notices should be beige. And that's not working out so well. We need to change it to blue. Well, if, if it's up to the executive on what color uh, a, a fire door uh, notice should be, and they, uh, the executive has chosen the wrong color and it's not, it's not working, then the regulatory process and regulations provide a, a, much, a much better, in my view, way to serve the common good and to uh, effectuate the goals of the legislation that it might be connected to or, or effectuate the, the safety that the state is, is charged with in its basic mission. So with many of these ideas in mind of the notion of a virtue-based legal system and uh, normative morality, the dynamic exploration of what the community needs through the common good, 
one of the important points I come to is that law is not an end in itself. Uh, and as I mentioned, nor is the immediate command of a specific law the end of that law. It might look on paper, but all that law does is decide a color or a notice that goes on a self-closing door. But it serves something much broader and has a, a much more meaning and, uh, and value that it brings to uh, society and community, true law, real law, just law, than simply the instant command that it is working with. Hello, this is Chris cutting in. We felt this was a good place to stop the first part of the lecture on revisiting the morality of law in regard to regulations. We'll continue the lecture and discussion in part two. See you then. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to keep up on our events, please follow The Common Good Project on Twitter. Or you can find a full listing of our past and future events by visiting the University of Oxford Faculty of Law's website. Thank you.